Okay, uh, just to give you a foot update, because I know you're all wondering about it. Still hurts. I go to the doctor on Tuesday, so. I actually called yesterday. I had time yesterday afternoon, or no, Saturday afternoon, where I could have carved an hour out to go to the doctor, and they're like, oh, sorry, we're booked. I'm like, you told me to call. I w-. Anyway, but Tuesday. So hopefully I won't complain about it anymore, and you guys probably don't even care as it is. Uh, a while ago, we handed out the, these Jamba Juice things that you put on your keychains. Anybody remember? Anybody got one of those? Show it up. Show it up. If you got one. Let's see it. Just so you can see what it looks like. Somebody. Right there. There you go. Just like this. Okay? Looks like that. If you go to Jamba Juice, what, what it does is you just swipe it and we get a portion of that sale if you ever go to Jamba Juice. Uh, what they're doing, if you have that card through the end of October, October 31st, is they'll even give you a buck off when you use it. So if you want one, you didn't get one, uh, back at the, at the Welcome Center, there's little cards like that. They don't cost you anything. They're free. You just grab, you don't have to fill out any form at all. You just take the card and walk off with it. And when you go to Jamba, just slide it. It's awesome. It's awesome. Hey, if you're new, you've never been to Elm before, welcome. Take a card and get us some money when you go to Jamba. Huh? No. Uh, there, there, there's Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. If you have a smartphone, you get an app called YouVersion, and this app, you click on Live, it'll bring us up by GPS. You'll get all the sermon notes, all the verses, all the questions, all of those kind of things. Can I get the thing on the back screen, by the way? Be cool. All right. Uh, I'll give you, people have been asking about this, so I'm going to try and give you a building update of where we're at. If you've been here for any length of time, you know that we have no idea how much longer we're going to be in this building before they kick us out. So that's essentially where we still are. Yay. So now you're up to date. Now, uh, there, there's a couple of things going on. We anticipate being here at least through the end of the year. Uh, but, and, and a place that we were talking to about maybe moving to kind of, kind of has fallen through in the last couple of weeks. So if you know of a place that, that we could stick a bunch of crazy people into, <laughs> that's you, by the way. Uh, <laughs> And, you know, meet together and, and have a place to actually have a church building. That would be awesome if you've got a rich Uncle Bill Gates and uh, he wants to help us out. That would be awesome too. Just letting you know. And if you know anybody who normally comes to Sunday night services, we have actually, we're not doing service tonight. We, it was a spur of the moment. We have about 75% of the people who normally come to Sunday night at this point has let us know, hey, it's Labor Day weekend. We're not going to be there. So I'm like, well, neither am I. So we're just... That's how it works. All right, why don't you stand with me reading to God's Word? This is Psalm chapter 25, verse 10. And it says, All the paths of the Ooh, what is that? All the paths of the Lord are steadfast. And I sure you changed the batteries last week. I'm not doing anything different. Getting this here. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Uh, Let's pray. Father, this morning, we as a people thank you for being a great God who has shown your people steadfast love, who has given us a testimony in our lives to share about how you have redeemed us and loved us and brought us together as a people. And we ask that our lives together corporately as well as individually would glorify who you are and all that we do. Amen. Have a seat. So this is Song of Solomon, week 14. We've got two weeks left after this week. 
Hope you've enjoyed it. If not, we do start a new series in, in about three weeks. Yay, good for you, whatever. Uh, this book has been about love and sex and intimacy and calling and honesty and reconciliation and hope and trust and community and Jesus, not necessarily in that order because we always put Jesus first. And my big fear that through this is maybe since week three, you've been like, oh, this has been really old. I hope you do not feel like that because this is some of the most practical stuff that I think you'll ever hear spoken of, not just an element, but in any church whatsoever. I mean, this, this has started, it was, it was dating, and then it went into their courtship, and then their wedding, and then their times of speaking great words of love and affirmation to each other. And then from there, you get a big fight that we looked at a few weeks ago. And there's rejection, and there's anger, and there's hurt. But then comes humbleness, and seeking, and honoring, and restoration, and reconciliation, and eventually what our culture would end up calling makeup sex. And what happens today is that right after all this takes place in the relationship, it begins to move forward again. So after a fight and all these things take place, what do you do? You don't sit and focus your entire life on the fight. You've got to move forward and you've got to go on with your life. This is where they go. In premarital counseling, I normally ask couples a question. I say, do you believe arguing is bad for a marriage? And most couples get it right and they say, you know, it's it's not bad. And that's true. It is not bad for a marriage when it's done correctly. In the early church, they argued and they debated. In Acts 15, verses 6 and 7, it says, The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, i.e. vigorous talking, i.e. argument, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Much debate is argument. When done right, arguments can actually strengthen a relationship, strengthen a marriage when resolved correctly. So before we move on and go into all the other stuff we're talking about today, I want to kind of briefly hit how to fight. All right? I didn't do this earlier because I didn't you to focus on, oh, I'm supposed to fight like this. I wanted you to focus on reconciliation and restoration. Now that we have that and you've got that in your mind, I'm going to talk to you a little about how to fight. Uh, there are two things you should never say when you fight. The two things are, you always and you never. All right? Never say that. You should never say that. You should always not say just, just like that. But having said that, I'll give you three things. First one, never hit. Never hit. If you're going to hit something, make sure it's outside of the house or outside of the car. All right? Go chop some wood, go to the batting cages, whatever. You never hit the other person. Second thing is you never call names. You never call names. If you start to call someone a name, especially in the heat of your anger, even when it's over, like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that, that still sits deep down inside the other person. You do not call names. And the third thing is you never say, I'm leaving, or I hate you, or I don't love you. Never say those things. Again, that will sit deep down inside the other person. You've got to be careful what you say and what you do. Uh, when you fight, whether it is in marriage or with your, with your boss or your friends, it should always be about resolution. A fight is never conquest where you just want to win at all costs. A fight is not a time to raise the white flag of surrender just to keep the peace. It is always meant to be about resolution, coming together, understanding each other better. People, when they get angry, they will usually vent, like they'll blow like a bad gasket in an engine that just runs terrible forever, or they suppress it and stuff it deep down inside. And then they go manic depressive and they cry for days and we don't know what to do with that either. See, we are to process and deal with it for the sake of resolution and reconciliation because God calls us to be a people of reconciliation. Resolution means you begin to offer words of love and forgiveness. That is where Solomon and his bride end up today after the fight, after the resetting and the reconciliation. 
My official text today is going to start in chapter 7, verse 11, but I want to start in chapter 7, verse 10, because I think it's important to start there. In chapter 7, verse 10, again, this is after, this is after the fight, this is after the rejection, the anger, the resetting, the humility, the grace, the response, the intimacy together. And this is what she says at the end of that. She says, chapter 7, verse 10, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Now, she has said this on two previous occasions, but a little bit different. In chapter 2, verse 16, she says, my beloved is mine and I am his. In chapter 6, verse 3, she says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is, I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. And here she says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. What this really means is that after the fight, after their big issue, she actually starts to learn that Solomon loves her for her. This could possibly uh, mean a deepened sense of security in Solomon's love. When she first mentions this refrain, it's when they're dating. And so she's all, oh, yeah, courtship, this is so awesome. And her possession of him is primary, and his possession of her is secondary. My beloved is mine, and I am his. The second phrase reverses the order, making his possession of her primary, in indicating a greater degree of security, where she says, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. Now, what she does, she takes her, her possession of him totally out of the equation. She trusts him so much after the fight and how they have had resolution and how they have had reconciliation that she simply says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. She is so focused on him now that she eliminates all of her possession of him. She understands how he loves her and how, and he knows how she needs to be led. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul has this whole chapter, almost a metaphor, between a husband and a wife and Jesus' relationship with the church. In Ephesians 5.25, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What this means is that the husband dies to his need to be in control of her and simply does whatever it takes to serve his bride. So she is presented, which Paul will eventually say, without spot or blemish or wrinkle. A husband dies to himself so the wife can live. That's biblical loving. That is biblical leading. It's just like Jesus lays down his life for the church. Now, I asked you a question, I think, in week six of this. I said, how would a woman respond if it were crystal clear to her that her husband was constantly placing her needs ahead of his own? And what if he did this all of the time? And what if the bride knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that her husband would die for her in the blink of an eye if he needed to? You know how she would respond? She would respond, I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Because she has given herself away to her husband, but in return, her husband has given himself to her. Healthy marriages have this mutual sense of abandon to each other. They both jump into each other. They've given themselves to each other. No, no one should hold back. No one should refrain. They both should give to each other. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul answers a bunch of questions from the Corinthian church posed to him. But in chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, he says this, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. This is the same thing that they just said in the Song of Solomon. It just goes back and forth. I am my beloved's, and he is mine. I am my beloved's, his desire is for me. That's what this is. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says that the husband, again, is to love his wife as Jesus loves the church. The word for there is the word agape. It is the word throughout the New Testament scriptures that is the word of God's love for his church, God's love for his people. In John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, it's the word agape. So what it tells you is the man is to love the woman like God loves the world. 
And I told you this before. Agape is a particular kind of love. Agape doesn't love somebody because they're worthy. It makes them worthy by the strength and power of its love. Agape does not love somebody because they're beautiful. It makes them beautiful by the strength and power of its love. Romans 5.8. God shows his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the idea of agape. And we have a Bible. Open to Ephesians chapter 5. Leave your finger in Song of Solomon 7. But open to Ephesians chapter 5. What you have to understand about why we do the Song of Solomon is that throughout the Scriptures, God's love and relationship with His people have spoken in a metaphorical analogy of Jesus as like a groom and His people, the church, are like His bride. And the better understanding of that, the better understanding we will have of how God loves His people. The relationship that God has with His people, the model He has given us to understand that is a good marriage is a good marriage. Again, this is why we have been studying the Song of Solomon. In Ephesians chapter 5, I want you to look at verses 28 to 32 with me. It says, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. This is because they're one flesh, biblically. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Moses, Jesus, Paul all tell you that. Those are the heavy hitters in the Bible, in case you don't know, so it's important to know. Verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The best way to understand a marriage is to essentially be a Christian who is actively involved in their church body. If you are a Christian and you are involved in your church, you will grow in your understanding of how the church is like a bride and Jesus is like a groom and the church is to reflect Jesus and Jesus lovingly, humbly, sacrificially, generously, graciously protects, provides for, and lays down his life for his bride, the church. Now, what has happened today, and this is a very sad thing, is that too many people treat the church like a consumer, and they treat their marriages like a consumer. This is, how can it give to me? How can it serve me? There there are times that people have come to Element, and they leave feeling like no one has ever said hi to them. And that really saddens me, because if you call yourself a believer, God has welcomed you into his family. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We, we have been welcomed. We should be the most welcoming people in the world. No one should ever walk out of this place feeling like no one said hi to them or cared about who they were. But other times, other people come in, they, and they have been said hi to, but nobody fell all over them. You know, no one treated them like, like a consumer, and they left, and they were angry. I mean, I mean, you see the difference between a consumer and a worshiper. A consumer believes the world is there to meet their needs. Everyone everyone and everything is there to help them out. I will give to you. You better give me something back. I have a dollar. I want to know where I can get the most for the least with the least amount of inconvenience. That's a consumer. A worshiper looks and says, where can I give this where the most people can be blessed? You don't get anything back, but yet God's word goes forward and he is glorified and people are touched with God's word and his grace. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. That's a worshiper. And yet we live in a world that is dominated by consumerism. And it has crept into the church and it has crept into marriages. And now we look at things like the work of the gospel as something that competes with our life. We look at maybe going to a GC or spending time with other Christian couples, maybe walking through the questions on the back of a Song of Solomon questionnaire as something that competes with our marriage and with the rest of our life. Uh, we, we look at maybe the church asking you to volunteer to do something as something that competes the rest of your life. Do you know, we do this thing on Thursday nights right now called Financial Peace University. 
And this is a great program because everybody's finances in our world are messed up, including our governments, but ours personally as well. They're just totally messed up. And so what we want to do is we want to help people to know how to have their finances work correctly. There's a lot of young parents who don't know how to save or spend or how not to put everything on credit cards. So we do this 13-week course. And we have been trying to get people to help watch kids on Thursday nights. It is like pulling teeth. We cannot get people to do it. You should be giving a... Oh, Christy's going to love me for this. But you, <laughs> you guys should be giving of your time to help out there, especially if you think these young couples really need help in how they spend their finances. You should come and take an hour of your week just to come and help out. <sighs> she didn't know I was going to do that, but you don't have... Consumers say, how can I give the least and get the most? That is not how we treat church. It is not how we treat a marriage. Again, a consumer sees God and church as a place where they get all their needs met with nothing given on their own part, never caring for anyone or anything else. And the worst part, I think, is when men have this attitude because they don't take responsibility for their life, their church, or their family and make everybody else do it. Consumers only invest in themselves. It is idolatry. It is self-worship. It is pride. And it is not how the bride of Christ was ever meant to function. And if you want to understand what a good marriage is to look like, you don't look first to married couples. You look at Jesus and his relationship to the church. And once you understand that, then couples can start to understand and get this together. And then you can look at the relationship. Now, in all of this, I've got to give it a caution in this analogy in Scripture. There, in Scripture, there is never any sexual connotations between Jesus and the church. Okay? When the church has spoken of, it is relationship to Christ. There is nothing sexual there at all. The concept of God's people as a, as a bride is corporate. It is all of us together. It is not individual. It is corporate. We as a group of people are like the bride of Christ. Because individually, this would make no sense. Because every dude in the room is going, I'm like Jesus' wife. And I read Song of Solomon. Is this going to go down? What? This, this is awkward, right? Right? No, it's the church collectively is like the bride of Christ. It is why Jesus and John both use the metaphor of a wedding feast for the bride coming home. And this is the wedding. It is God and his bride. Now, it is also why we get together as a community weekly, on a weekly basis. Hopefully, you guys also do that in gospel communities throughout the week. We do this to worship God together, to practice hospitality together, to get to know each other better. And in a sense, it's also supposed to be like a respite, a vacation from everything that happens around you that so wants to pull you away from who God calls us to be. It's a time of being able to relax and a time of being able to be fed as well with other believers around you. And what happens in the Song of Solomon today is they've gone through the fight. They understand it is about, it's about resolution and reconciliation. They, they are no longer treating each other like a consumer. And now they come together and they say, hey, why don't we get together, you and I, and get away from everything? And this is, again, after they made up. And so the wife comes and she says, we need to get away. You and I need to reset ourselves. Song of Songs, chapter 7, verse 11, the woman broaches the subject and says, we as a married couple, again, need to get away. Chapter 7, verse 11 starts like this. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields. This is the countryside. Let's turn off the email and get rid of our cell phones for a while, no TV, and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see where the vines have budded, where the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. Again, she says, let's go on vacation together, you and me. A good marriage reflects Jesus and his bride. This is a good marriage. Life is so hectic. There must be times that you spend together with your spouse. You've got to be able to get away. The wife invites him on a holiday together. Now, 
There are two ways to get your spouse to go on vacation with you. Number one is to nag them. Oh, we never have a break. We never go on vacation. We never have any fun. Oh, your friends are always over here. You're always busy. That's not a good invitation, right? That, that's like, I've got to spend a week with this, and I'd rather go to work because it's less work. Right? The second thing is you invite them. You invite them. She says, the very next line, there I will give you my love. We will have sex. Oh, that's a totally different proposition right there. It's like, oh, really? We're going. When? Where? Where's the plane? I'll call it right now. And what, what essentially she says in this context is there are places to make love other than the bedroom. She invites Solomon for an escape to the forest of Lebanon, the mountains to the north. And it's she who suggests this because his desire is for her and she knows that. She says, there I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. Now, married couples, I will tell you this. With a little careful research, you can probably find places other than the bedroom to have sex. Sometimes you might even be able to do it outside. And I know you're asking, well, should I do this? It's in the Bible. Again, these are prescriptive versus descriptive text. Okay, a prescriptive text tells you what you have to do. Descriptive says what they did. You don't have to, but it might be kind of cool. But I will say two things. If you do, number one, don't get caught. Don't get caught. Be sure you do your research. You don't want to be out in the middle of somewhere all, hey, baby, and a Boy Scout troop comes walking through going, hey, I just got my peeping Tom badge. And they look on there, what's that one for? It looks weird. Well, I'll tell you. This is what happened, right? Number two, if you do get caught, you don't tell anybody I told you to do it. All right? Well, the pastor said, all right, no, you, you don't just... Yeah, let that go. She tells him, it is spring, we're stressed, let's go. She says, let us go out early to the vineyards and see where the vines have blooded, budded where the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. You know at this point, they have been married for some time. They got married in the spring in chapter 2. So this is probably, it's at least a year, probably a few years later after they got married and they're still looking for ways to give to one another. If you are married, here's my question for you today. Actually, I got two on the way home. Number one, Ask your spouse this, have I gotten lazy in any way in our marriage? Have I gotten lazy in any way in our marriage? And the second question is this, can I do anything to make you feel like I am still totally into you? Can I do anything to make you feel like I am still totally into you? Now, because they are excited about each other all the time, the wife still continues. Chapter 8, verse 1. Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breast. If I found you outside, I would kiss you, and none would despise me. Now, this is a verse that's what we call cultural distance. Because, guys, if you came home and your wife was like, Oh, I was thinking about you all day. I want to make out with you like my brother. You'd be like, That's not turning me on. It's actually kind of creepy. You know, you, you would say something like that. This is not like the deep south in the Middle East, right? This is... This is this is proper display of affection. In this culture, you could have no public displays of affection, no PDA. And what she says, I want to kiss you when we go places. I want to hold your hand when we're places. But it's not appropriate. The only time it is appropriate in this culture is for young children who are siblings. She says, I want to be able to kiss you outside. But it's inappropriate. But I would really like to do that. Now, uh, PDA has gotten a little more relaxed in our day. Couples hold hands. They kiss outside. Sometimes it's gotten a little bit... Out of hand. I, I was in Rome with my wife last year and some friends of ours, Sean and Michelle Combs. And uh, here's a, I'll show you a picture. All right. So this is Sean and Michelle on the right. I am not talking about them in this story. All right. See this couple over here? I actually took the picture just so I could get this couple on the left because I knew I was going to use them as a sermon illustration. <laughs> so I'm like, hey, Sean and Michelle, smile. I'm all, click. And I, this, 
this couple, because we I was writing the Song of Solomon at the time we were coming to, this is going to totally gross you out. But this couple, they, he's got like this, I don't know, something in his hand. He, they're, they're both eating this, and they're chewing, and then they start to kiss each other. Like, in the, like full mouths full of food, wide open. T- I'm just like, <laughs> right? That it, okay, if you ever thought, like, that's cool to do outside, it's not. All right? I'm just letting you know, this is improper PDA. She actually just wants to have proper public display of affection. She wants to hold his hand and kiss him and love him. Verse 2, she says, I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother. She who used to teach me, I would give you spiced wine to drink the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. This is, again, is more allusion to her longing for him. And then in chapter 8, verse 4, she repeats this line for the third time. She says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love and until it pleases. Now we're going to spend a little bit of time on that as we get to the end of this. But she, I, I think she says this because what she does is she's thinking back to all the other times in her marriages and she repeats this refrain that she has said before. Again, this is after the fight. This is after they have come back together. And if you want to have the type of relationship in your marriage that is free enough to experience the kind of intimacy that this couple has, we must be a people who take her warning seriously because she's given it three times, exact same wording. The first warning is chapter 2, verse 7. And in the context of her warning, what she says is, if you want to have maximum fulfillment in marriage, you do not become involved sexually with anyone before the one God intends for you. How do you know the one God intends for you? You marry them. Right? I do. Ring. Oh, good. Okay, that's the one. Right? Not until you say I do and you got the ring. Marry them. The second warning, chapter 3, verse 5, she says the exact same thing. In the context, it is, if you want to be free to evaluate objectively and consider the cost of marriage to a particular person, do not allow yourself to become sexually involved with them or all that objectivity is going to be lost. And there are great issues at stake with this. And then when she says it in chapter 8, verse 4, what it kind of does, when, when something says like in a Hebrew text, it will actually refer to all the other times it has said it. And in the context then, she, what she is talking about is their premarital sexual chastity in view of all the lights of the adjustments after they got married and all the things that kind of dealt with. Because this fight originally, it dealt with sexual conflict with them. After you said, I do, if you haven't done it before you said, I do, you're going to be much better off being able to resolve some differences. To involve yourself sexually before you are married, to continue your your ability to resolve problems after you get married. And we know this is not theoretical. You can talk to any marriage counselor. They will give you numerous illustrations of the effects of premarital sexual involvement on postmarital sexual adjustment. It happens all the time. Now, don't get me wrong. If you have messed up, there is good news. Your life is not over. I think it can be more difficult. Right? But your life is not over. Believers in Christ, we experience forgiveness of sin through the cross of Christ. Every sin you have ever committed or ever will commit is paid for at the cross. Jesus promises to cleanse his bride, to care for her and love her. We will be white as snow. In chapter 8, verse 1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This means your sins have been forgiven. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this is where I kind of want to camp just for a minute. Uh, if you're single, I, we've talked a lot about married couples, and I just want to talk to you guys for a second. God calls us to live a certain way. He made us to live a certain way. He knows what we need. He knows how our relationships will flourish. 
It is why constantly throughout the scriptures he talks about that sex is for the marriage covenant. Again, in Ephesians 5, all the illustrations to marriage and Christ and the church, Paul says this in Ephesians 5, 3, that sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you as proper among God's saints. The NIV says it like this, but among you there must not be a hint of sexual immorality because these are improper for God's holy people. See, God doesn't call it wrong because he wants to kill your fun. God calls it wrong because he wants you to have great sex. He wants you to have a great relationship with your spouse where he's going, yes, that's what I intended. When sex is introduced in a relationship, it totally changes the equation. Now, my wife loves Judge Judy. She DVRs two episodes every single day. All right? I hate Judge Judy. Not personally. I mean, I never met her, right? But the show, I, I hate the show because every case, the exact same thing. Couple met, they started having sex, they move in together, they break up, they hate each other, and they want each other to suffer. Nobody learns, all right? If you are thinking about moving in with your boyfriend or girlfriend, watch one week of Judge Judy, okay? Just one, because you know what? That's going to be you. That you be like, oh, no, it won't. I'm, no, I, every, every single person on this show didn't go into those relationships thinking, yeah, I'm going to end up on Judge Judy looking like a wacko, all right? Every one of them do. That's going to be you if you don't listen to what God says. I mean, you may say things like, well, I'm not having intercourse with them. We're just fooling around doing other stuff. Paul's words in Ephesians 5.3 is like a sexual junk drawer. It's for everything. It is lust. It is pornography. It is strip clubs. It is websites. It is movies. It is sex before marriage. It is sex outside of marriage. It is romance novels. It is heavy petting outside of marriage. It is, it is oral sex outside of marriage. It is, you know, I got to put that caveat in there, by the way. Uh, it, it, is, it is everything you can think of. It is, it is, oh, Aaron didn't say pictures on my cell phone. Yes, that counts. Pictures on your cell phone, anything, dry humping. It, it all counts, all of it. We have a distorted view like a cracked windshield when it comes to seeing our own sin. We do. We think, oh, I'm okay, and it's everybody else. God didn't really call me to live like this. He called everybody else to live like this. He called all of us to live a certain way because he knows how our lives will be the most fulfilled. Now, what do you do if you've screwed up? You repent. You pray. You allow Jesus to search you. Psalm 139, verse 23, the psalm writer says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious anxious thoughts. This is about restoration and reconciliation. The psalmist says, God, go inside, do a fearless inventory of who I am, and you show me who I'm supposed to be and how I'm supposed to glorify you. Only God can overcome our distorted vision of ourselves. Isaiah 5.20, God says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Left to ourselves, that will be us. We will always excuse and defend our own sin. But in John chapter 16, Jesus says part of the Holy Spirit's job is to convict us of that sin, and that is a good thing. When you feel His Spirit inside you going, this is the way you're supposed to live, not the way you're going. Repentance, like this couple come back together. Repentance for God over our sin is never despairing over our sin. It's done in hope. Guilt sometimes pushes us to repentance, but it's never where we're supposed to stay. Repentance is a gift that God gives his people for our own sake, not for his. Repentance is what is called a remedial work. It's meant to mend our hearts and our minds because they get bent by sin all the time. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets, but worldly sorrow brings death. God convicts us because the direction we're going is death. But God's conviction leads us to life and not despair. If you are someone who is totally messed up in your life and you are wallowing in despair, that is not from God. God intends for you to step on the other side of that and glorify and live for him in your life. 
Do you know that you can have the relationships in your life that God wants for you? Your church relationships, your friendships relationships, especially the relationship with your spouse, can be full of humbleness and joy and laughter and hope. These are relationships completely different than you see in movies or TV because they're not fairy tale. They're not make-believe. They're real relationships. But the way that happens is we trust Him and who He calls us to be, that He made us, and we bow our entire wills at the foot of the cross, and Jesus washes us as His bride corporately, as white as snow. And then we step out and we live the life that He intends for us to live not just in our marriages, but in every relationship. And it's reflected in how the church lives for him by his grace. All of these things go together. This great metaphor of God and his bride and Solomon and his wife and what our marriages are supposed to be. Your past sin is not the end. It is not the end. Maybe the fight that you had on the way to church this morning or last week, that is not the end. You know, the end isn't even the end. Because God intends for us to walk through all of eternity step by step with Him in His grace, in His arms, bringing it together as His bride, as His people. But we must be a people who understand what He's called us to and not be afraid to reconcile, not be afraid to say, my sin has caused me to live a way that God does not want me to live. This is why we invite you to communion every week because this is a place where we say this to God again, my sin has pulled me away from who you've called me to be. And I need to lay my life at the foot of your cross and remember what you have done for me and live and walk in the newness of life that you call me to. And then you have the relationships you were meant to, you have the relationship with other believers, especially the relationship with your spouse that you were meant to. That's why you take that cracker and you break it like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice representing his blood that was shed for you and I so we can live as a redeemed and reconciled and loved and, quite honestly, finally, a holy people. The band's going to come up. They're going to do a couple songs. And as they, and as they do these songs, what, what I want you to do is take a moment or two to realize that God is the one who sits on the throne and it is not us. And so we bow our lives and all that we are to Him. And in realizing that, you come to the place where you you take all of the the garbage and guilt and stuff from your past and you set it aside, you take communion, and you begin to walk in the newness of life that God calls you to. You come together as a people for a respite with each other, but then our lives are lived outside of these walls, offering the gospel and hope and grace to everyone around us. There are deacons and elders in the back if you need prayer. And you feel like, man, I totally need this, but I have no idea how that even looks or what I'm supposed to do. Go and pray with them. If you never met Jesus Christ, go and pray with them. There's offering boxes on the sidewall on the back. We give because God gave so much to us, so giving is simply part of our worship. So we offer you that opportunity every single week. And again, fellowship corporately, the body of believers, we gather together. And the relationships we have with each other are also supposed to reflect the relationship we have with our great and good God. So we encourage you guys to, to sign up for a gospel community. Get to know some other people in here that maybe you don't know. Invite them out to lunch, dinner, whatever. You know, I don't know. Uh, go cow tipping, whatever. I don't know. But, but do something with some other believers so your relationships can strengthen with each other. And we can more accurately reflect what the bride of Christ is supposed to look like. Because our God is good. And he has given us great grace. We need to live within that grace. Let's pray. Part of this morning, I ask that you would make us a people who understand, especially by the time that we finish the Song of Solomon, the relationship of you 
and your bride the church and a husband and a wife and what that is supposed to look like in fullness and truth. Father, have us be a people who in all of our lives begin to reflect that better so the people we come into contact with will know who you are not just from our words but more importantly by how we live by the relationships that we share by how we give as you have given by how we seek out others as you have sought us and that our lives would be simply a response to how our great God has loved us and brought us home. Have us be a people who constantly remember that you, as our God, you reign, you sit on the throne, and it is not us who reigns and sits on the throne. Have us bow our will and our lives to you, so that as we live out practically the pages of the Song of Solomon, you gain much glory. And in turn, your people do get much joy. Amen.